Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Theo Boyd. Theo, whose given name is Elizabeth, after her two grandmothers, Selma and Elizabeth, is a farm girl at heart. For most of her adult life, she lived in Waxahachie, Texas, about 30 minutes south of Dallas, where she taught high school English, raised her daughter, and was an active volunteer in various organizations for community and her church. After 30 years, she moved back to her hometown of Whitney, Texas, to come to terms with the death of her mother in a tragic farming accident, followed three years later by her father's suicide. She now devotes her time to writing and speaking about loss, grief, and faith, with the mission of helping others find comfort and hope. Today, we'll be talking mostly about her recently released book, My Grief is Not Like Yours, Learning to Live After Unimaginable Loss, A Daughter's Journey. Welcome, Theo. Hi, thank you. Uh, Thank you for being on the show. My Grief is Not Like Yours could be the title of almost every book (laughs) about grief, but I see why it's the title of your book, because your life previous to the loss of your parents is is so completely different from the life before. And if, I wonder if you could just um, kind of share the outline of, of what happened uh, in, in your life that led to the book. Absolutely. Um, July 28th of 2019, I had it all. Everything was great. So, you know, that was actually four years ago today. And on July 29th, which will be tomorrow, I got a call that my mom had been in an accident on the farm. So I, from that moment on, my life has never been the same. And if you would have told me four years ago today that I would be on a grief podcast talking at a, about a book that I've written on complicated grief because I was about to lose everyone that I held close, I would have said, no, you're lying. But I started journaling after Mama's accident and the going back to the title of the book, I'm so glad that you said that. It could be the title and it should be the title of every grief book because, first of all, I wish there didn't have to be a grief book. But the reason that I wrote this one is because I could not get my hands on a book that hit me as hard as I'd been hit. And the only words that kept replaying in my mind over and over were my grief is not like yours, because just like you, I'm sure that in grief, you have been compared to other griefs. And in that you feel unheard. You feel like your grief is getting hijacked. And I just felt unheard. So that's how this book title came to be. And I just hope everybody that gets the book can own that title for themselves. It's not just me writing about my story, which I'm going to tell you about. It's me writing for everybody out there that felt like I did. But back to the accident, I um, got the call that my mom had been killed on the farm and my dad had accidentally run over her with one of the farm tractors. 
They were six months shy of their 50th wedding anniversary. And they were the most perfect, beautiful love story. And it, it killed my dad that day. I told everybody at the funeral that I've lost daddy on that day as well. I didn't just lose my mom. And so I took family leave from the high school where I was teaching. I stayed and lived with my dad a couple of months. And we went to complicated grief counseling. And then a few months later, my grief counselor and the counselor and friend I'd had for 18 years died suddenly. Then a few months after that, my husband, I found out, was having an affair. And we were started to go through a divorce. And then last Father's Day, June the 19th, 2022, I went to surprise my dad with breakfast that morning for Father's Day and found that he had taken his life. So those are the losses that I go in detail about in the book. And that's that's the synopsis of all the griefs that I have experienced. You, you just kind of got thrashed around by so many, uh, some, some more mm, divorces of more regular sort of grief, I guess. Not that any grief is regular, but it happens to so many people. It's not unusual. But so many of your losses were traumatic in in the most uh so those two interweaving must have been a big part of of how you were uh hit by everything the trauma part yes and i i really attribute the way that i was you know i'm sitting here talking to you and i look like i've got it all together right well i've had a lot of training and a lot of counseling And, you know, I had a counselor before my mom's accident when my life was great. I had a counselor because I just frankly like the fact you can pay somebody to listen to you talk. And I I just went to her. I'm here to, to, you know, attest to the to the uh, wonder of that. That's what I do in the rest of my life. And it's interesting, too, because your family um, definitely um, religious practice Christians uh your dad as was my dad a minister um you know and and yet still you saw the value of what counselors do and I think that's an important message uh she was there for you not every counselor is good with grief so you were very lucky lucky on that score I feel until she of course until she died but um to have someone who knows about grief and how to work with grief, because it is quite different, as I'm sure you can vouch for. What you need in grief is different from the rest of the time, yes? I tell people all the time, you you must find someone that's trained in specifically grief counseling, specifically complicated, complex grief, which is now known as prolonged grief disorder, PGD. You've got to find somebody that specializes in that, because if you don't, there's a risk there of not not getting the proper, you know, instruction to start to heal. And I had a phenomenal counselor who was trained in everything. And an example of how I knew this, I went, you know, the night of my mom's accident, I texted her. We had a great relationship, which I talk about in the book. She actually texted me back. And my dad, this retired minister, had been just cussing like crazy. And I just had never heard these words come out of his mouth. And it was quite scary because... 
here I was, this daughter who just lost her mom tragically. I found out real quickly that my dad could not be there to comfort me. And and just the opposite of that, he was, you know, cussing horribly. So I texted her and said, he's saying all these things. My mom's been run over by the tractor, blah, blah, blah. She texted back and said, what has stayed with me and what I just feel is so important for people to know. Let him say the words that carry the weight of his pain. Let him say the weighted heavy words, because those are the only words that carry the weight of this loss. It's interesting because I was I was uh, watching actually a um, a wonderful teacher about dementia the other day, and she was explaining why people with dementia um, say those words that they've been conditioned out of. Um, which is that the conditioning goes away. But also she was talking about how um, those are the words that are going to come out in trauma because you've got them in this little compartment. They're like um, special words, <laughs> in other words, you know, and so that that is what's going to pop out when you have a trauma like that. So your your counselor helped you there because that must have been shocking. Uh, because it was so unusual, right? Yes, it was so, and I was so scared, actually. I was just, here I was without a mom, and here I was with a dad I didn't even recognize. And sure, he had started showing a few signs of the dementia before the accident, but after the accident, and his neurologist spoke to this, it catapulted his dementia three to five years instantly in that moment. I don't know if you know that a lot of people are actually falsely diagnosed with dementia in after the loss of a spouse. Uh, that makes sense. That makes sense. It, doesn't it? Because it, it fogs your brain and does all the things that dementia does, but often that lifts for people. For your dad, no, but for many people after a couple of years, that lifts. Um, so... I imagine it, it was interesting reading your book to compare what happened with you and your dad and your sister all had the same or in the same category trauma. His was, of course, more because he felt responsible and all that. But it seemed as if your faith helped you a lot. And it seemed as if his perhaps didn't help him as much. Is that an accurate idea? And how do you account for that? Because, of course, he had had a lifetime of deep faith, but it seemed to abandon him a bit. That's the impression I got. What, what do you think that? He was diagnosed with white matter disease. And what that does is just kind of eat away at um, the parts of the brain that affect um, his rationalization, his mobility. And he was already showing signs of anger and angry about that and just bitter. Something my dad I hadn't really ever seen. And then after the accident, he just completely in the night of the accident, I heard him saying, um, you really got me good, you know, talking to God. He, he felt that he'd served God his entire life. And that's a question I'm going to have one day. You know, God, why did you use my dad as a tool in that? It felt it felt like my dad was used in that. And, you know, my mom, I, I just don't understand why my father was the was the one involved. And the, do you understand what I'm saying? It, there were just too many questions. This make a difference. 
Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, working in this area, I think a lot about faith and how it helps and how it doesn't. And people have many different faiths. And it does seem as if when people have a belief in something larger than themselves, it helps until it until you imagine that that something larger is making everything happen. And then it's t horribly painful because this friendly God who's been with you your whole life seems to have abandoned you. Um, my compromise with that is my sense of something greater is there to support me and be with me, but is not directing all the action because I just can't, I can't believe in a God who would have your dad drive over your mom. Right. <laughs> right. And in, in daddy's defense, it wasn't just him. I gave up on God. I, you know, daddy was second in line. It's Jesus. And then, and then daddy. So I was like, well, they've both given up here. So I'm out. I'm, I'm uh -huh. checked out. <laughs> you know, I'm not anymore. I was just out and I had, I had totally given up on God. But then as I'll tell you later in this podcast and the reason I'm writing a second book is because I saw the signs along the way that I could not discount that God had not ever given up on me. He was still there. And that was just a freak accident that happens on this earth because of sin. And, and it happened. And my dad never did come back to, to his full love of the Lord that he had. But I did. And it's because of all these things that I've seen happen and play out in my life. But believe me, I was I, I didn't want to hear a Bible verse or read the Bible after my mom died. I'll tell you that. Yeah, well, I guess um, for people who who are faithful, um, I would call myself ecumenical more than faithful. But um, you can be mad at God. I mean, God's big enough to handle it, right? <laughs> You, you can reject. <laughs> you can do whatever you need to do and then come back around to the idea that something is there for you. So okay. you you did do that, which must break your heart a bit that your dad who had who had instilled all those things in you um could not. It many things broke my heart and what I tell people all the time, God will give you more than you can handle but it is still part of his plan. And my dad is proof of that. My dad is proof that God will give you. He'll allow more than you can handle to happen in your life, but it's still part of your plan, of his plan. And, you know, in terms of you, we're, we're almost, it's almost time for a break, but I want to talk more about this when we, we come back. In terms of coming to terms with uh, a suicide, which is a particular kind of grief, right? Because um, the way one of my teachers used to put it is when someone kills themselves, they put their skeleton in your closet. Um, you know, you're left with all of the questions. But in your dad's case, maybe it was just too much pain to bear. It, it was. And And is it... Uh, obviously, we'll, we'll dive a little more into this, but is that a place that helps you to live with the fact that he did that? As yes, absolutely. And I will tell you, I don't 
feel that my dad committed suicide. I feel like it, I still call it the accident, but I also call it Sue aside. My mother's name was Sue and he wanted to be with her. And, and also if you can't overcome, you know, just a couple of days ago, Sinead O'Connor took her life. Yes. And um, if you look at her life and what she struggled with, it, it's not mysterious, is it? Right. You just can't bear your dad. This was a a, a complete turn in his life between yeah. the death and the loss of your mom. But I have so much compassion for the level of pain it takes to make that choice. Yes. And I just, I knew, I knew, I knew he lasted three years longer than I thought he would. Mm. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. You know how to follow me on Instagram, like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, connect on LinkedIn. I'm on um, TikTok, but still developing that. And to find Theo Boyd, go to thinktheo.com. Be back soon. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. 
To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Theo Boyd about what letter to write her book, My Grief is Not Like Yours. And um, before the break, Theo, we were talking about um, coming to terms with the suicide of someone you love so much. And for you would never have predicted, I don't think, given who you described in your book, you would never have predicted that end to your father's life. Um, but I wonder if, uh, I wonder how you have managed to, because you sound very, very accepting of it in the book. I'm sure that was a, a road you had to travel to get there, but um, it seems as if you came to terms with that. And of course, um, that's a particular kind of kind of loss. I've had many shows about suicide loss as as different in some ways. How did you come to terms with that, especially discovering him? Of course, the very first, you know, few hours and days, you just blame yourself. I started recalculating and rethinking, maybe I should have done this. Maybe I should have said this. Why didn't I do this? You know, you, I think, I think almost everyone that's experienced a suicide loss goes through that grief and blaming. What could I have done? What should I have done? What? Why didn't I say this? Why didn't I check this? Why didn't I call him that night? I always called him, but I knew the next morning I was going to surprise him on Father's Day. And we'd had such a great day together that Saturday. And I just kept replaying all those scenes. How could I have done them differently? But one of um, my dad's dearest friends, a lady there in the community that had been helping me with him, she was a childhood friend of my dad's and just a sweet, sweet lady that I talk about in the book. She looked at me and said, don't do that. Your dad had this already in his mind. He has been thinking about this from the day your mom left this earth. And you can't do that. You just have to know now that he's with her. And I just feel like, I feel like daddy gave us the last thing that he could give us in his capacity at that time. He was, he was becoming almost completely immobile. He could barely get out of the bed. He knew that the next few weeks we were going to be looking at different nursing facilities for him because we couldn't take care of him at home any longer. And I think he was scared to death, literally of being trapped in his body, not able to move with his mind still functioning pretty well and trapped with those scenes from the accident and he could not bear it. I think those are wise words of of his friend. And it, it also makes me wonder whether he was sharing with her something that he protected you and your sister from because she seems to have known this was maybe being considered. <laughs> but, you know. He wasn't completely surprised but she was pretty taken back she was pretty shocked that morning when I called her to come over and she she just couldn't believe I think she didn't you know I mean we never know it until it happens and you know hindsight's twenty twenty. but I just know that he couldn't bear being in his body any longer his mobility was gone plus he didn't have my mom he just 
And he would tell me time and time again when I'd go visit him, I'm miserable. I hate this life. I mean, he just, he was miserable. And Gail, my counselor, had told me three years ago, you can make sure your dad is safe, but you cannot try to make sure he's going to be happy. You can just forget about him ever being completely happy again. Sure, did I hear my dad laugh in the last three years? Yes. Sure, did we have some fun times talking about old times and memories? Sure. But deep down, the light in his eyes was gone. Mm. He he was just tired. And in his last note to me and my sister, he wrote us a note. He said, I am tired of living and tired of dying, plain tired. He was a tired peanut farmer who'd worked so hard physically his entire life. He was a tired minister who had ministered to the community for 40 years and preached thousands of funerals. He was exhausted. And this last hit and blow that hit him three, four years ago tomorrow, that was just, that was the last thing he could handle. He couldn't handle anymore. Well, the other thing that that touched my heart about it is that because a farm implement that was important to all of you, it it um, supported you life and limb, you know, yeah. It was it was um, a beautiful representation in my mind. I've never lived on a farm. I know nothing about being a farm daughter, but you pretty vividly captured what that feels like. And to have the tractor implicated in the worst event of anyone's life, it, it kind of takes more out of you or, or um, you can never look at farming the same i imagine um and that must have been a, a a very deep blow for him yes you know daddy loved his tractors which is the reason they even went out to the tractor that evening i had texted my mom i was going to meet them the next day for a doctor's appointment for my dad we were going to go to lunch daddy was going to take us dress shopping he loved to take mama to a little dress store in the town where they went to the doctor and Pick, let her pick out a dress and he was going to buy me one and I was going to start going with them on their doctor visits to help because my mother was deaf. My mother was completely deaf. She wore a hearing aid, which gave her 5% and she was a professional lip reader. So she could read lips like, like everybody, or I'm sorry, she could read lips like nobody's business. But when, when I decided to go with them, it's mainly because daddy's neurologist has a big mustache and beard. My mom can't read his lips. It's very difficult. So I was going to be going with them to the doctor the very next day. But um, they went out and checked on the tractors late that evening after I thought they'd already gotten ready to go to bed. And I, so I was completely shocked. Daddy had just gotten this last minute idea to go check the battery on one of the tractors, their biggest tractor. And mama went with him. She wouldn't let daddy do anything without her. She was afraid he would get hurt. Mm, so ironic there in the worst possible way. You know, I, I, uh, they used to say in, in the grief world, um, there's no real difference between sudden loss, unexpected loss and um, loss after an illness or something. I completely disagree Um, from my own experience of, of course, helping someone with health problems for 10 years, that is different. And uh, I don't know if you feel the difference there, but it stands out to me that your losses were so sudden. 
Yes. I, my grief is not like yours. That's just ringing in my head. My grief is not like yours. Very sweet, well-intentioned friends and family tried to comfort me by explaining, you know, well, I lost my mom and it took me a couple of years and, and I would listen, but in my mind, I did not, I could not relate to them or even want to talk to them because if their mother had not just been run over by a tractor that their father was driving, there's no way they knew what I was feeling. And I would, I, I just felt so unheard. I felt shut down. I felt oppressed. And, and I just knew if I'm feeling this way, there's got to be a million people out there feeling the same way that I'm feeling, that our grief is not being heard because we're being silenced by everybody else having to share their story. And when I go out and speak to groups, I don't speak on grief. I speak on listening intently and how important it is. I want to hear their story, but not just a few days after my mom died in this tragic way. And so I talk about how important it is. The most important thing that we can do for people that have lost someone is to just sit with them, be in the room. I have an entire chapter in my book called In the Room because the most most wonderful and accurate example that I've had in my life of the best listener is my mother, and she was profoundly deaf. But she could sit in a room, and her presence was felt. And she knew everything that was said, everything that was going on, but yet she couldn't hear. And I just think that speaks volumes to us. How powerful is that, that a woman that was deaf was the best listener because she kept her mouth closed most of the time and her eyes were open and she was reading lips. So she was hearing in that way, in that capacity. But I just think it's so important that we allow each person to have their own grief. And yes, I want to hear your story, but not at, not immediately after my story is, has just started. Not, to me, not as a as a strategy to try to make you feel better because your job at that moment was to feel terrifically bad right there there's so to me um some people who have had their own losses get good at sitting with your pain yes and i'll bet there were exceptions like that cuz you talk in your book about you know, friends who really could be there for you. And I'll bet it's that quality of not trying to change how you're feeling, which is the only way forward I know about, um, make space for how you're actually really feeling. Um, yes. I agree. Anything else is alienating, isn't it, at that moment? Yes. My friends were wonderful. My um, very blonde mothers is what I call them. They, they appear right when you need them the most. They're there to pull me up when I'm falling down. They, they're there to hold me up. And they were just phenomenal. And they would just come and they were on a rotation to come stay with me at the house. And they didn't, they didn't ask me. They didn't require anything. They didn't tell me how I was supposed to be. They were just there making me a cup of coffee, making me a little dinner, making me a glass of wine. They were just there. The best friends in, on the planet. And that's why I'm that's the contrast, isn't it? The platitudes or the, you know, don't worry, you'll get through this or the he's in a better place or whatever the things are, don't actually relate to where you're at at that moment, do they? But just being there is enough. 
I think yes. that's. You know, oh. I took my to a women's conference in 2018 in Dallas and we got there and there's about 2,400 people there and we were about halfway to three quarters of the way back. You could barely see the stage. I looked around for teleprompters. I looked around for sign language because my mom could read sign language, although she didn't use it. And there was nothing. So I looked over at my mom and I just silently said, I'm so sorry, you can't hear them. And she looked back at me with the sweetest smile and said, it's okay. I'm just happy to be in the room. Hmm. And so that, that has stuck with me. And that's why there's a chapter in my book called In the Room. And I talk about the power of being present. Never underestimate the power of just being you know, the whole point of this show is grief is a terrible, horrible, rotten mess. I'm sure you'll agree. But what we sometimes make out of it is profound. So your your mother had a loss. She was not born deaf. So no, she you're right. A very early loss. But look what she made out of it. Uh, that that. I, I think those two things probably are related, her being able to just, she had to learn to be present for the times when she couldn't hear, perhaps. Do you she think was, so? Absolutely. She was a phenomenal person. I mean, just, I, I'm still in awe of what she did and how she lived her life and how she was always so positive and pushing us forward. And our she was our biggest cheerleader. And she was the glue that held the family together. And she was just a tiny little thing. Daddy used to say, we have to tie a watermelon to her leg to keep her from blowing away. <laughs> she was just a little petite thing that was always dressed up on the farm. She might be helping daddy work cattle, but she had on the cutest little outfit. She was always put together and just, she was just an absolutely wonderful person, human being, and my mother. How lucky am I? You know, in the in the trauma world, in the world of trying to discover how to deal with trauma, um, there's a differentiation made between, let's say, two soldiers go to war. Uh, one of them had no significant previous trauma, and the other did, like difficult childhood, whatever it might be. Um, the person who had the difficult time before war does not is more likely to have post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was thinking about that when I was reading the book, because you had a pretty blessed life previous to these calamities, and you were able over time, not that much time, I, I want to say four years is not very long with, with these types of losses, but you have so much love and um, care poured into you previous to that. Do you think that's part of what's helped you to go forward? Absolutely. I would not be sitting here, been able to write a book. I learned how to write from my dad, who was a writer. He wrote poetry and sermons and funeral speeches. And I, I wouldn't be able to sit here had I not had the wonderful foundation of um, upbringing in my childhood on the farm. 
And if I had not had my everything that I've done in my life has brought me to this point, school, teaching school and um, just learning how to work with people and love people. And my 18 years with my counselor who became one of my best friends, all that, all that that I've soaked up like a sponge for, you know, 47. I think I started writing the book when I was 47. All that that I've soaked up for 47 years has brought me to this point to where now what's healing for me and my writing is helping to heal others. And of course, I'm not saying that we can't heal even with the previous trauma, but I just was so struck reading your book um, at how much resource you had inside. You probably didn't feel that way at the start, but um, it did come through. It's time for our second break, and listeners, you can find me at weatheringgrief.com, my website, or the Good Grief host page. Please be in touch. I want to know what you what touches you in the program, what you'd like more of. All of that feedback is wonderful. And to find Theo Boyd, you can go to thinktheo.com. Back soon. <laughs> Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Are you tired of feeling powerless over food? Do you obsess over every bite? Dr. Nina is here to help you identify your hidden triggers, stop emotional eating, and create permanent, sustainable weight loss. No more diets and no more deprivation. Learn how to live a life of freedom, joy, and happiness while still enjoying the food you love. Join Dr. Nina as she shares her expertise on how to outsmart emotional eating and live your best life on The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. Thursdays at 12 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. 
Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Theo Boyd about her book, My Grief is Not Like Yours. And before the break, uh, we were talking about the things that don't help us and the things that help us, right? In dealing with any grief, but traumatic grief in particular, that uh, you were very... Um, complete in your rendering of how it was with your parents. You did not forget how they were before the calamity, you know, and um, you you love them so unequivocally. And I'm I'm sure that helped you because they they put that in you. Um, but I can also imagine that. Um, because so many came at once, you're within a short span, your mom, your dad, your divorce, you know, your therapist, that um, it maybe was hard to find that at first, would you say? To, yeah. to kind of find that center in yourself at first. Well, uh, it seemed like the time I got my footing and I gained some ground that then the floor dropped out from underneath me again, you know, and I... I got to where I was so scared when things seemed to be stabilizing because I was like, what's next, you know? And I just was like, I can't. And um, kind of a little funny thing that I put in the book, I have a lot of little funny parts in there, but right after my father's death, I called my girlfriends, you know, the fairy blonde mothers, I call them. And they were like, we'll be there. And they got there within an hour and the farm's like an hour and a half away. So I don't know how that happens, but that was dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> Lawn mothers, they just appear and they got out of their SUV and Charlotte, she opened her door and she just got out and she goes, Theo, you just can't make this shit up. And she said, you got to hurry up and finish that book because as long as it's remaining open, more shit's going to happen. <laughs> and that's kind of how I felt the book. It's like the book wasn't getting finished and I'd started it three years ago and it was just about my mom and then it was about my counselor and then I was going to work my marriage into it and then. I was about two weeks from the um, due date with the publishers and my dad, you know, is gone. So I tell everyone, it's like I had all the chapters laid out on a, on my dining table. I did have them all laid out. And it's like somebody turned on a box fan and all the papers just went up in a big whirlwind. And that's exactly what happened in my mind. I was like, I'll never finish this book. This is, I don't understand what's going on. And then just a few weeks later, I started writing because that's my healing. When I can write what I'm feeling and put it out on the page, that's when I heal. And I was typing and my face, I, I was getting wet marks, you know, on my fingers and my face was just wet with tears and I didn't even know I was crying. So as I was typing the words, I was healing. And so the book, the book got finished and it became such a great, I'm so proud of it because I would have never in a million years thought that I would have written this book, much less put parts in there to kind of turn it into a workbook. And, you know, after each chapter, I put in little questions to the reader because I really want them to feel some ownership in this and for them to turn this tile around for themselves and write in their own journey with grief. And, you know, I, one lady came up to me at a bookstore recently, a book event, and she said, I wanted to show you the notes that I'm making in your book and how much it's helped me because what you say on those pages 
is what I've wanted to say, but don't have the ability to do. So I got this book for my entire family. And I told them, you've been wondering what's wrong with me. Read this book. That's interesting because um, obviously to feel seen in a book is helpful. But for other people to gain an understanding, the people who haven't experienced it is even in a way more important to me. It, uh, that's it, the way I do this. You know, it, it it matters. And we're not grief educated, are we? Nor no. are we educated. No, uh, I'm trying to educate my little grandchildren in grief, but the society doesn't necessarily do it. Um, and there are there are things to know about it like what you said with what people say to each other in grief, um, how we support each other. It's the deepest aspect of our lives in some ways, birth and death. And yet we, we don't have skill. I tell people all the time, I'm not a counselor. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a grief expert, but I'm just a farm girl. And I was baptized by fire on this subject. And I just started journaling what, what was happening in my life and what hurt me and what helped me. And I just put it all in this one place. And I'm so thankful for it because it is a memoir. And I'm so thankful to look back on the memories of my mom and dad that are so strong and so prominent in my mind. But to be able to look back 10 years from now and remember the smell of the flowers at my mom's funeral and the way my dad smelled in the casket. Because I'm, you know, I talk a lot in the book about how my dad loved to smell things. And I, there's a lot of imagery in the book because I love that. But I realize it's not just my dad that likes to smell things. I do. Because I talk <laughs> about the smells in the book all the time, the smell of my daughter's you know, my daughter is a baby in my arms and I compare that to the flowers on mama's casket and the smell of my dad. And yeah, I think I said, I think I said in the book, it was a mixture of camphophonic and old spice, but it, you know, it was like an old closet in a new mansion. And I just, I love that I can go back now and remember, and I've, so many people have said to me at, at book events, I wish I could go back and write exactly how I felt when my mom died, you know, it, it's cathartic for so many. For me, I'm a feeler. I like to feel. I just, I've always been that. My dad was that way. We're very sentimental um, people. And so to know that I've got it now all in one place and anytime I can just go crack the book open and read a few parts and just remember. Including, including your two lists of a hundred qualities for each of your parents. <laughs> That's <laughs> <laughs> that was a quite a list. Uh, it brings up something, you know, you're you're talking about smelling your dad in the casket brings up um, something I believe, which is that people do better in grief, actually, if they don't avoid being with the body. You're right. My, my wife happened to die at home. All the kids were in the room. Um, along with a host of others. And I I do feel it brought a reality to what was happening. Even the two and a half year old never said, where is she or when is she coming? Never, because when you see that the body no longer is inhabited by the person, um, 
it's painful, yes, but don't you think it helps? Uh, I know there's, uh, you weren't sure you'd be able to be with your mom's body and you really wanted to be. I, d I don't want to make a rule about everybody, but for me, it certainly seems to help people. It depends on the person and the family and their and their um, customs, you know, and their religion. But I, you know, like I said in the book, we the boys were just the casket buried in the ground type of people. And we I took my nephew, actually, he was only six and we went to visit my dad at the funeral home. My sister wasn't sure she could do it. So I took him because he wanted to see Bob. They called my dad Bob. The grandkids did because his name was Joe Bob and. And my daughter actually started calling him. He didn't want to be called grandpa. So she started calling him. She was the first grandchild. She called him Doe Bob because she couldn't pronounce the J for Joe Bob. So then it just became Bob. So Henry wanted to go see Bob and I took him. And I think it was so good for him because he, he, he wasn't upset. He wasn't crying. He just said, Bob looks good. Bob looks, Bob looks like he's sleeping good. And and I said, yes. And then he said, I think Bob's in heaven. I said, yes. I mean, he was just really processing it. And and I just I think it was sometimes kids are better at it than grownups. We yes, have years and, years and years of, of of cultural messages that we should stay away. Uh, yes. Kids don't always have that, do they? You know, and they have questions and he had so many questions. So I just took him with me the day before the funeral. And we went up there and spent some time at the funeral home in that room with daddy. And and when we first went in, Henry just said, is that Bob's dead body? And I said, yes. So and straightforward. He, <laughs> he, he, he signed the book. It was so precious. He wanted to see. He didn't want to keep having these questions. Questions and I think that's so crucial. Of course, it depends on the family and what you believe. But no I rules, but but it can. I guess I want to put out the message that if you're at all drawn to it, don't think it's something weird. Right. It, 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 you know, and and it may not be something that you think you would ever do until something does happen close to you. And, you know, I was raised that way. Daddy preached so many funerals and I was always right there by with my parents and daddy would be preaching a funeral. So the, the body in a casket to me is just it's almost as common as seeing a round bale of hay out in a field, you know. But to some people, it's just like, oh, I've never had to see a dead body. You know, it's very, very tra traumatizing. But Henry really wanted to see and I felt honored to be able to to take him. And I, I felt like daddy was right there with us and thankful that I did that. And I can imagine since your sister agreed to let him go, that perhaps she was thankful as well that you could do something she wasn't, she wasn't ready to do herself, but you gave that to your nephew. Absolutely. We, yes, everybody grieves in their own way. And I knew my sister you know, I've always been the talker of the, of the two of us. She's the quiet one. And I, I just knew she was grieving in her own way. But in my way, I was up there, you know, getting ready for the funeral. And I thought, I'll just take Henry with me. And we we drove around actually running a lot of errands that day to get ready for the funeral. And we listened to the Out of Africa soundtrack, which was one of daddy's favorite musical scores. He thought it was beautiful. And he had said years ago, I want that at my funeral. So when the slideshow played at his funeral, it was to the Out of Africa soundtrack. That's unusual. That's beautiful. <laughs> but 
ironic about that is one of the songs is um, on, um, oh, I can't remember, but it has the word farm in it. I'll have to look that up. And I was, oh, I bought a farm. Yes, I, ha I bought a farm. And I was like, oh my gosh, it has farm in it. Daddy loved this music. So all day we drove around. It was a very sunny day. And all that Henry and I wanted to listen to was that Out of Africa soundtrack. So we drove away, you know, all through the country looking at fields of hay and cattle and that's playing. And it was just a very cathartic, wonderful day for me and my nephew. Isn't it, you know, this is why I think grief is not depression, because never would you be able to say on a very, very depressed day that anything was wonderful. But in grief, in grief, there are wonderful things. There are also terrible things. Uh, it's kind of everything, isn't it? Uh, so I'm that stands I'm out that, that the wonder of being with your nephew that day preparing for what was a heart-crushing event was beautiful and so probably, probably joyful. It was. And I'm just so glad that you brought that up about the depression. I got labeled um, by a few people as depressed. And I was like, let me set everybody straight. And I blog almost daily on my Facebook page, Think Theo. But I, I have a whole blog that I wrote about we grieving people get a bad rap. We're not, we may, we're grieving. We're not depressed. We're not suicidal. We are just sad. Can we just not be sad? It, when did being sad become something that has to be corrected and has to be fixed? We're just sad. You mentioned, don't assume where I'm at without asking me. Because if someone had assumed you were sad at the moment you were sharing that with your nephew, they would have been wrong. You were right. not wrong. Had, you were having a bunch of other feelings as well. So I think that is, um, boy, if we have to nail it down to one thing, it might be that. Make no assumptions. There you go. <laughs> so we'll do our best at that too, huh? Uh, to not make assumptions. Well, I'll tell you, I, I sort of feel as if I've spent an hour with you and your parents. Um, yeah. It feels to me as if they... Yeah, they show themselves in you. Thank you. How, is that how you feel about it as well? A great compliment. <laughs> Thanks for being with me today, Theo. It's It's been a delight. Thank and you. Again, to find Theo Boyd, you can go to thinktheo.com. Next week, I'll have Susan Hayden, the founder of the library series in LA. I've had her on this show once before. Uh, she started the series after her husband was killed in a skiing accident, and she just had a drive to make a space for literature. She's now written a book of her own, Now You Are a Missing Person, and I can't wait to talk with her about that. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.